Amen. Thanks, guys. I should have mentioned at the beginning, I reminded you last week that uh, we didn't have Stephen up here with us on the piano because uh, Marissa was past her due date and she ended up, uh, Ivy was born uh, at the end of this past week. And so uh, they're out this morning because they have a new baby at the house. So keep Stephen and Marissa and uh, the girls, Aria and Elise, in your prayers and, of course, Ivy as well. Uh, but you go, go and take your Bible this morning and open up with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians for several months now and probably only a couple weeks now left in this study. And with chapter 3, we really moved into the application part of the letter where, where Paul is now telling us how our faith in Christ is supposed to be lived out. Now, you've got to get what's underlying this. What's underlying this is the idea that becoming a Christian is not just uh, a paperwork change. It's not just your name has moved from one column to the other column, but becoming a a Christian is a radical transformation. Uh, Justin mentioned earlier that, that the Bible describes it as God taking out the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. And with that heart of flesh comes new desires, new appetites, new hungers. With that new heart, in fact, comes a new purpose in life. And that new purpose in life will inevitably change how we live our lives. Or another way to say it would be that there's this this death and resurrection that happens at every conversion. Where when you became a Christian, the old you died. The you who lived for self, the you who lived in shackles to sin, the you who lived your life ignoring God, that you died. And a new you has been born. And so the the call now, Colossians 3 is saying, the way we live the Christian life practically now by faith in Christ is we live putting to death all of the attitudes and all of the behaviors that went with our old life. And we live putting on the attitudes and behaviors that mark us out as followers of Jesus. And that's not just theoretical. That is intensely practical. In fact... Being a follower of Jesus now will affect us at the most basic, fundamental level of our lives. It will affect us in our families. So that Paul says that Christian children are now to put off defiance and rebellion. Christian children die to that in order to honor and obey their parents. And Christian wives are called to put off rivalry and disrespect Die to that in order to now submit to your husband. Christian husbands are to put off selfishness and passivity. Die to that in order to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. So following Jesus affects how we live in our families. And that's where we spend a lot of time with our families. But that's not where we spend all of our time. There's another place where we end up spending hours and hours And ours, where? At our jobs. Most of us work in some fashion. And we spend about half of our waking hours in our jobs doing various kinds of work. So how does faith in Jesus affect that part of our lives? Well, that's what Paul is going to address in our text this morning. So if your Bible's open to Colossians chapter 3, I want to go ahead and read it with you. And by the way, this is one of those places where the chapter divisions were not put in a good spot. You know, the, 
chapter divisions, verse divisions were added much later to the Bible. And verse 1 of chapter 4 really goes with the paragraph at the end of chapter 3. So we're going to start in verse 23 of Colossians 3. And we'll go down through chapter 4, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 22 of chapter 3. And here's what Paul writes. He writes, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there's no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, it would be real easy just to read that and go straight to the application. Paul's addressing masters and bondservants for us. That's like employers and employees, and, and here's what that looks like. And that is a right, valid application. We'll get there. But I feel like if we jump straight into the application, we would sort of be ignoring the elephant in the room. Because Paul addresses this to masters, and he uses the word bondservants. In Greek, it's the word doulos. That's, that's the word for slave. He's addressing masters and slaves in Roman culture. In fact, that, that shows up quite a few times in the New Testament. There are seven New Testament letters. Roughly 25% of the New Testament letters have something to say to masters and bond servants. So how, how do we understand that? How, how do we understand what the Bible has to say about slavery? So I want to take a minute and think about that. Masters, slaves, why he's saying that, what he's addressing. And then I want to get into, from there, the application that this has for us. Okay, so here's the first We'll look at it under three headings. Here's the first one. Number one, how to think about slavery in the Bible. Why is it that Paul gives instructions here to masters and bondservants? And the answer is because that's the environment that Paul was writing into. Slavery was absolutely everywhere in the Roman world. And of course, you understand, slavery is one of the oldest institutions in humanity. Just about every civilization that has ever existed has practiced some form of slavery. In fact, the word slave itself comes from the word Slav. The Slavs are those Eastern European people, hundreds of thousands that were taken as slaves, most taken as slaves into the, the Muslim world. And of course, here in America, we're familiar with the transatlantic slave trade where millions of Africans were taken to North America and the Caribbean and, and South America. But the fact of the matter is that just about every civilization that has ever existed has had people from that culture taken as slaves, and just about every culture that has ever existed has taken people as slaves. And that was certainly the case in Rome. I should even say that some estimates would say that even today there are as many as 50 million people around the world who are in some form of slavery. And in the Roman Empire, slavery was rampant. Slavery was absolutely everywhere. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That means one out of every three people you would come into contact with in the Roman Empire was a slave. And it wasn't any sort of race-based slavery. You could find slaves in the Roman Empire from every race, every ethnic group in the Mediterranean world. And while people would become slaves for lots of different reasons... There were two primary drivers 
of slavery in the Roman Empire. The two main drivers were war and debt. So on the one hand, the Roman Empire was constantly conquering new areas, expanding into new territories. And the question was, when you conquered a people group, when you defeated an army, what were you supposed to do with the people you conquered? And most most cultures recognized you would do two things. You would either kill the people you conquered, or you would take the people you conquered as slaves. And that's what the Romans did. They would incorporate millions of people who they conquered, bring them into the Roman Empire, and use them as slaves. That was their way of sort of incorporating them into Roman culture. And then the other driver of slavery in Paul's day was debt. If you got into debt in the Roman world, you couldn't file chapter 11 bankruptcy. You couldn't just keep moving your total to a different credit card and floating it around. You had to at some point settle those debts. And if you couldn't settle your debts, you would have to often sell yourself into slavery. You would become the slave of the person you were indebted to until you paid off your debts. And slavery also functioned as a kind of um, financial life raft. This was a very difficult world to survive in. There's no, there's no social safety nets in Paul's day. There's no government-endorsed food stamps or unemployment checks. And so this is a world where there are millions of people who are on the verge of hunger and starvation. And one of the things you could do if you're on the brink of survival to survive, to keep yourself and your family afloat was you would become a slave. That would guarantee food. It would guarantee clothing. It would guarantee a roof over your head. So there were millions in the Roman Empire who were slaves for financial reasons as well. And, and slaves in the Roman world did everything imaginable. We, we think of slaves usually as doing only manual labor kinds of jobs. But in the Roman Empire, there were slaves who were accountants and teachers and did medical sort of work. Because as the Romans conquered people group, people groups, you would, you would end up with slaves with all sorts of different skill sets. And you would bring those slaves into the Roman culture and they would end up doing all sorts of different jobs. And again, slaves were everywhere. There were actually more slaves in the Roman Empire than there were citizens of the Roman Empire. And that's the environment that the gospel first began to spread in. So the gospel was being preached to all these different people, to children and adults, to men and women, to slaves and slave owners. And there are people from all of these different groups who are hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus. People from all of these different groups in a particular area who are being saved and are coming together in local congregations... And so what Paul does in his letters is he begins telling us how to live for Jesus in whatever situation we find ourselves in. So Paul doesn't write his letters in the New Testament mainly as a way of blowing up or overthrowing systems. He writes mainly to tell us how to honor Jesus in the situation that we find ourselves in. Just like The Roman Empire was largely a pagan government. The Roman Empire was in many ways a corrupt government. But Paul doesn't write his letters in the New Testament to tell them how to foment a a revolution in the Roman Empire. He writes his letters often to tell them how to honor Christ even under a corrupt Roman government. See, what's underlying this is when you become a Christian, listen, this is important. When you become a Christian, it does not immediately change the situation that you're in. 
If you're in debt when you become a Christian, after you're converted, you still have debt to deal with. And now you need to find principles in the Bible that tell you how to handle your money and how to handle your debt in a way that pleases God. If you are in prison when you heard the gospel and believed, well, after you're converted, you're still going to be in prison. And you need to know how to honor Christ in that environment that you find yourself in. And so Paul's main goal is to tell each group how to live for Christ in the situation that they find themselves in. And I want to make, make a kind of a fine point on this. The primary goal, the primary goal of Christianity has never been to mainly change the social order. The goal of Christianity is to change people's hearts. The gospel is not addressed to systems. The gospel is addressed to people. And as people change, systems change. But you should be very wary of any form of Christianity that ends up presenting itself mainly as some kind of social movement. This is everywhere today. Where there's this church over here and they're mainly about economic inequalities. And there's this group over here and they're mainly about, uh, they're mainly about undoing the political system. And there's this group over here and they're mainly about economic issues or whatever else it may be. Our main work as a church is to be ambassadors of Christ. We call people to repent of their sins and believe, to come to faith in Jesus. And then we go out and we live for Jesus in whatever situation we're in. And what happens over time is as people's hearts change, systems change. So my point isn't that the order doesn't get changed. My, order, my point is that's not the primary focus. The primary focus is the gospel. The primary focus is people being changed. And as people are changed, systems then changed. And that, that's exactly how Christianity deals with the issue of slavery. Paul starts by mainly telling Christians how to live for Jesus in whatever situation they find themselves in. And then what the gospel does is it sows seeds that over time bring that corrupt system to its knees. So, so just think about it. The, the core message of Christianity is that we all are in the same position in our sins before God. We are separated from God and under condemnation. That's the position of every single human being by birth. And the gospel also says the only way anyone can ever be right with God is through the work Jesus did. It is through repentance and faith. And then the gospel tells us that everyone who is in Jesus by faith stands in the same position before God. We're all equal before God. We're all accepted by God. We're all sons and daughters of God. Well, that message begins ripping all of the underpinnings out of the whole system of slavery. So Paul tells them how to live as slaves, but, but the Bible doesn't endorse slavery in the same way that it would endorse marriage or family, the two things we looked at right before this. So the Bible does endorse marriage. God created marriage. He tells a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. God did create the family. He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. But slavery wasn't created by God in the garden. Slavery is here because of sin. So what the Bible does is it tells us how to live in that, in ever, whatever situation you find yourself in, in a way that pleases God, and then the gospel sows seeds that undoes those systems. So, so I'll just give you an example. You find Paul in his New Testament letters in 1 Timothy, he makes the application that one of the ways that people might violate the 8th commandment, the 8th commandment is thou shalt not steal. 
Paul says one of the ways you would violate the Eighth Commandment is by what he calls man-stealing. That's where you would steal people, kidnap them, in order to sell them as slaves. So Paul says the Eighth Commandment forbids that. So it forbids Christians from being involved in any sort of taking of, of people against their will in order to make them slaves. And then what's the key ethic for, uh, of Christians when it comes to how we treat other people? Well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We're commanded to love our neighbors, to love all of our neighbors as we love ourselves. When, when Paul writes his letter to Philemon, who owned a slave named Onesimus, do you remember what Paul says to Philemon? He tells him not to treat Onesimus as a slave, but he's to receive Onesimus back as a brother. Well, do you see how that undoes the whole framework? So if, if, if Onesimus, if Philemon is called to treat slaves as he would want to be treated and to love a slave as his brother and to love a slave as he would his own neighbor, that's eventually going to result in the overturning of the, the whole system. So that, that's the way the Bible addresses this. And I should just pause and say something about Philemon and Onesimus. What church were Philemon and Onesimus part of? The church of Colossae. Do you remember who those guys are? Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from Philemon, stole from Philemon when he ran away, and in God's providence, he ended up crossing paths with Paul all the way over in Rome. And in Rome, from Paul, he heard the gospel and believed. He was converted. And so Paul sent Onesimus back to Colossae. And he sent Onesimus back with Tychicus, carrying two letters. Two of our New Testament letters. He was, they were carrying with them Philemon. And they were carrying with them the letter that we're studying now. They were carrying with them the New Testament letter of Colossians. And I say that just to say. So when Paul addresses masters and slaves in this letter, he's actually writing this to a, uh, to a congregation where in the congregation there would have been bond servants and masters in the same congregation. And so you can imagine the ripple... When he said, for instance, look back up to chapter 3. He's writing into that context a church made up of both of these groups. And look at what he just said, Colossians 3. Go up, start in verse 10. Paul says, we've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And here's what we have in the new man. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all and in all. You see what Paul's saying to this church? Where there would have been probably Greeks and Jews. There would have been slaves and masters. And Paul is saying none of that is what sets you apart. Greeks aren't better than barbarians. Masters aren't better than bond servants. All that matters now in the kingdom of God, all that matters now is Christ. And the ground is level now at the foot of the cross. And you can imagine how that language would just start unraveling the threads of slavery. But in the meantime, these Christians needed to know how to live in a way that honored Jesus in that situation. And that's what Paul's explaining here. So if you're converted and you're a slave, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to now live in a way that honors Christ? That's what Paul lays out. Okay. But there are no slaves or, bond, or uh, slave owners here. So how does this apply to us? Well, it's true, you're not, you're not owned by anyone. But for most of us in here, you do work for someone. And you realize what you're doing when you work for someone, right? 
you are selling them a certain portion of your life. When you work for someone, you're saying, these 40 or 50 hours of my week, they now belong to you. I'll use my labor, I'll use my creativity, I'll use my sweat, I'll use my skill, I'll use my effort for this portion of my life. I'll use it in a way that benefits you. So you sell them a portion of your life in order to receive certain benefits. So what Paul says here has direct application to our work situations. And what's great is Paul has something to say to us no matter which side of the work equation you're on. If you are purely an employee, Paul has something to say. If you're a boss, he has something to say. If you're somewhere in the middle, he has something to say. So here's the second thing I want you to see. Number two, I want to see how to honor God as an employee. Look at verse 22 again. Here's how to honor God if you're working for someone else, if you're under the authority of someone else. Paul says, verse 22, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Okay, so if you work for someone, this is for you. And let me just quickly tell you why this is so helpful. I I feel certain that there is someone in this room this morning that you feel like your job situation is the worst job situation imaginable. You have the worst boss imaginable. Nobody else could possibly imagine what you have to deal with. So surely, surely Paul would give you some leeway. You wouldn't be expected to live this way. But I would remind you, Paul wrote this to literal slaves. Your situation is not worse than their situation. These people had no government protections, no minimum wages, no benefit packages. So if God... If Paul, God speaking through Paul, expected these people to live this way, then we can rest assured he expects nothing less from us. So what is the first command? The first command is the simple word, obey. That means to listen under, to listen responsively, to listen in order to follow instructions. And so the idea is that it is the employer's responsibility to decide what needs to be done, and it is the employee's responsibility to do it. Okay, so don't be, listen Christian, don't be a rebellious, defiant employee. Don't be like a teenager who rolls your eyes and mumbles under your breath every time you're told something to do. One of the ways we honor Christ in our jobs is by submitting to the authorities there. This is something we've come across so much the last few weeks. In every sphere of life, God has ordained roles of authority and submission. All of us have some sphere where we're obligated to submit to some God-appointed human authority. And what's interesting, we think submission is a great idea when we're the ones in authority. But all of a sudden, when we're under authority, we struggle to submit. And I don't don't care what your mama told you. That's not because you're strong-willed. That's because you're a sinner. We have sinful hearts that don't want to do what we're told, that kick against, naturally kick against authority. But Paul is reminding us that one of the main ways that we honor God in the workplace is by submitting to the authorities that God has appointed there. But he adds, don't do it, look at verse 22 again, don't do it with eye service 
as men pleasers. That means don't just do it when the boss is watching. Where you work, work hard when the boss works, walks into the room and all of a sudden you slack off when the foreman turns his head. Right? Don't just do it for someone's attention because you're not ultimately a servant of your boss, you're a servant of the Lord. I'll give you an application of this. Everyone who has ever played sports or coached sports has witnessed this. So practice comes to an end and it's time to run sprints. So in football, they'll often line the guys up on the sideline and say, we're going to run gassers. What that looks like is you start on the sideline, you run out, touch the first hash, run back, touch the sideline, run out, touch the second hash, come back and touch the sideline, run to the other side of the field, come back. In basketball, you start on the end line, you touch the free throw line and then run back, and then touch the half court line and run back. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know what happens. When the coach is standing right there watching, everybody, when they come back, make sure they touch the line. But as soon as the coach diverts his attention, as soon as the coach turns away, what does everybody do as they run back? Everybody pulls up short of the line. They don't quite go all the way. That is a sports analogy of doing something for eye service as men pleasers. And the way that translates into the workplace is, man, when the boss comes in the room, when the foreman is watching, you are busy as a bee. But as soon as he walks away, you shift it into neutral. And Paul is saying that is not the sort of behavior that pleases God. Instead, he tells us to work, the phrase that he uses is that we're to work in sincerity of heart Fearing God. Sincerity of heart means singleness of heart. It means you don't work with a divided heart. You're not halfway in and halfway out. Halfway working, halfway daydreaming. The great missionary Jim Elliott said, wherever you are, be all there. If you're at work, work. That's what Paul is saying. And sincerity of heart is also the idea of I'll say it this way. The opposite of singleness of heart would be duplicity. What does it mean to be duplicitous? It means to be two-faced. So Paul's saying don't be two-faced. So an example of that at work would be where you smile and pat the boss on the back when he walks into the room and then you walk into the, the break room and say, man, I hate that guy. Now Paul's saying don't be a two-faced person. Speak respectfully to your boss and speak respectfully to others when you're talking about your boss. And then Paul sums it up by saying we do this fearing God. That means work in a way that shows your reverence for God. God is not just with you here. God is with you there. God doesn't just care how you sing on Sundays. God cares how you work on Mondays. So when you go to work tomorrow morning, you are going to work under the watchful gaze of God. So Paul is saying, let that be what motivates you. Verse 23, he continues, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. That sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? Whatever you do. That means whether you're digging ditches or mopping floors or seeing patients or teaching a room full of students or inputting information into a computer or cooking meals or whatever you do, Paul says, do it 
heartily. That means do it with zeal. Do the best you can do. Why? Because Paul says you are doing it for the Lord, not for men. That means cooking that meal, inputting that data, seeing that patient, showing that house, teaching those students... It can be done in a way that honors God. Which means that our work actually can become an act of worship. So whatever you do as, uh, for your job as a Christian, what Paul is doing here is this infuses your work with a new sense of purpose. It doesn't matter what your job is, how menial you, you think your job is. This means that it has purpose to it. It has a goal to it. Whatever that job is, you can do it in a way that brings honor to Christ. Listen to how Paul says this in Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 verses 9 and 10. Paul says, exhort bondservants. That's that same word, doulos. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters. To be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, that means stealing, but showing all good fidelity. Notice the goal of this. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Get what Paul's saying. He's saying work hard, have integrity, be faithful, so that you can adorn the doctrine of our Savior. Adorn means to show the beauty of something. To show it in the best possible light. To make it attractive So Paul is saying, by your work ethic, by your faithfulness, by your attitude, by your integrity, you can make the gospel attractive to other people. Listen, if you are a lazy, constantly complaining person, nobody wants to hear about your faith and do us all a favor and don't talk about your faith. But if you're the sort of person who works hard and you're the one person on the job who's not constantly complaining about the boss and does what you're supposed to do whether the boss is there or he's not there and follows your convictions, if you do that, Paul is saying that you can show the beauty of the gospel by what you do on your job. Do you see how that infuses your work with a new sense of purpose? That infuses your work with a new sense of dignity. God can use how you work to change your boss's or your co-worker's attitude toward the faith. That's a huge goal. Back in the 1970s, there was a journalist in Toronto, Canada, who was doing an investigative report on uh, the mechanic shops around Toronto because there were all sorts of rumors that all the mechanics in Toronto were corrupt, that they were overcharging people. And so what this, what this investigative journalist did is he got under the hood of his car and unplugged a, a spark plug wire. And he would pull into the mechanic shop with the car kind of clanging around. And inevitably what would happen, the mechanic would come out and end up, all that needed to be done was a spark plug wire needed to be plugged back in. But inevitably, the mechanic would come out, take his car, and end up charging him hundreds of dollars for all sorts of things that did not need to be done. Until finally, one morning, he pulled into a service station and a mechanic came out, opened the hood of his car, plugged back in the spark plug wire, closed his hood, and said, you should be good to go. The mechanic, his nickname was Red. Everybody in the area knew Red. And the journalist said, what do you mean I'm good to go? What do I owe you? And Red said, you don't owe me anything. All you needed was that wire plug back in. It didn't take me any time. You're good to go. And the journalist again pushed back and said, what do you mean I don't owe you anything? Tell me what I owe you. And, 
And Red said, I'm a Christian. You don't owe me anything. It didn't take me any time to do it. You're good to go. Well, when that Sunday rolled around, guess what the front page story was in the Toronto newspaper, the Toronto Star? It was that story with, with that quote from Red about what it meant to be a Christian and how it affected him as a mechanic. When Haddon Robinson told that story, he said this, quote, I would dare say that in all of Canada that day, no preacher, no evangelist, no author made as big an impact for Jesus as a little mechanic in Toronto. That's what it means to adorn the gospel by how you work. Verse 24. Verse 24, he says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now that, that is an unbelievable thing because uh, in Paul's day, slaves didn't get any kind of inheritance. Slaves were owned. They didn't own anything. So the idea that a slave would receive an inheritance was unbelievably far-fetched. But Paul's reminding them and reminding us that there is an inheritance coming. Your, your earthly boss may not appreciate your integrity. Your earthly boss may not appreciate what you do. But your heavenly boss does. And he'll reward you for it. Which means when the day comes that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When the day comes when we receive our rewards as believers. Don't have the idea that our reward is going to be based just on what you do here. Like it's the work you do at the church. That's all that matters to God. No. No, God cares what we do everywhere. Every part of your life matters to God. And on that day, rewards will be based on what we do in our workplaces that honor the Lord. So rest assured, your work for the Lord is not going unnoticed. And I should add, notice that last phrase of that verse puts some guardrails around what we're allowed to do as we serve our uh, employers because Paul reminds us, the end of verse 24, that we serve the Lord Christ. That means above your boss's authority stands the Lord's authority. So if your boss, if that lesser authority tells you to do something that would be out of step with the higher authority, that's when you must not submit. That's when you must not obey. So the, the general principle of the Bible is we submit to government authorities. Yet, when Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to murder all the baby boys, they did not obey. When the Jerusalem authorities told the apostles to stop preaching about Jesus, they did not obey. So if your boss tells you to, uh, to lie to a client, to fudge an expense report, um, if your, your company is going to try to make you wear a rainbow pin during Pride Month, your commitment to Jesus forbids you from submitting to your boss or your employer on those occasions. You have a higher authority. You are serving the Lord Christ. One more verse for workers. Verse 25, Paul says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. The point is it cuts both ways. Not only will God reward us for the work we do that honors him, but he also repays us for the wrong we do. Now this isn't talking about heaven or hell. Make sure you hear me on this. 
Our standing with God eternally is not based on the work that we do anywhere at any level. Our standing before God is based entirely on the work Jesus has done for us. You understand that? Through faith, our lives are hidden in Christ. His death is counted as our death. His death atoned for our sins. We're imputed, credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that we're found innocent, righteous before God. His resurrection frees us and gives us everlasting life. So our standing before God, our justification before God is based on the work Jesus did. But now as children of God, the work that we do matters to God. When we begin living in a way, this is in any part of our lives, when we begin living in a way that is out of step with our faith, God will fatherly discipline us. And Paul is reminding us here that that fatherly discipline even extends into the area of our work life. And he adds that God does this with no partiality. That means God's judgment is unbiased. It doesn't matter whether you're the, the top name or the bottom name on the company flowchart. It doesn't matter whether you are sitting in the CEO's office or sitting on a lawnmower outside cutting the grass. It doesn't matter. God holds us to the same standard. So it doesn't matter what your position is. You are not exempt from what God requires of you as his child in these verses. That's his instruction to employees. Here's the final part. How to honor God as an employer. And Paul's instructions here are much more brief. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I know it doesn't seem this way to us, but what Paul says to masters is far more radical than what he says to slaves. Because in Paul's day, there was no concept that masters had any sort of obligation toward their servants. Because slaves were viewed as property. They were tools, like, like shovels and rakes. And whoever imagined being kind to a shovel, whoever imagined being fair toward a rake. They had no concept. Your whole goal with a shovel is just to work it. And that's how masters thought about their slaves. The whole goal was just to get as much work out of them as you possibly could. But Paul is reminding these Christian masters that they had a responsibility to deal with them justly and fairly. So these bond servants couldn't demand fair and just treatment, but God demands it. And God requires the same out of us so that if people work for you, that means they're not to be viewed as your tools. They're just there for you to get as much work out of them as you possibly can. They're just, they're just cogs in the wheel of your business. That's, that's all they are. No, God demands that you treat them justly. That means that you give them what they're due, that you keep your word, that you treat them well, and that you be fair. That means you don't try to get away with paying them as little as you possibly can. Why? What's the reason for that? Well, Paul says, because you also have a master in heaven. You see what Paul's reminding you of? You might be in a position of authority at work, but you're also a person who is under authority. 
You might be in a role where people call you boss, but Paul is reminding us that you also have a boss. And you're going to answer to him for how you treat the people under your authority. And God does not give preferential treatment to bosses. Rest assured, God is not impressed by your MBA. God's not impressed by how much money you made for your company last year. So don't start, don't start getting too big for your britches because you're in a position of authority. Remember, you have a master who you're going to give an account to one day. So here's the bottom line, Christian. There is not a single part of your life that does not matter to God. Christians have often used the, the Latin phrase, Coram Deo. Coram Deo means in the presence of God or before the face of God. And the point is, we live all of life Coram Deo. God sees us wherever we go. God is with us wherever we go. And that's not just meant to strike fear, like God always sees me. That's also meant to infuse everything that you do with purpose. Everything you do, God sees. Everything you do, God cares about. Everything you do can be done in a way that brings glory to God. Your work ethic matters to God. How you treat your boss and your co-workers matters to God. How you treat the people who are under your authority on the job matters to God. So be the kind of employee or be the kind of boss who adorns the gospel well. Show the beauty of the gospel. Show the difference Christ makes by your behavior on the job. That's Paul's point. So let's bow together for a word of prayer. And I'm going to give you time just to go to the Lord in your seat and pray and make application of this to your own heart. And maybe you have been living way out of step with what Paul says here. Maybe your work life has sort of been cordoned off from the rest of your life and your attitude is miserable and your work ethic is embarrassing. And God's call to you from this is repent. Turn from that. And because of the work of Christ, we have a merciful Savior. There is forgiveness in Christ. So look to him, trust in him, and pray that we would be the sort of people who show the beauty of the gospel by how we work. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray in your seat, and then I'll come close this.